Hello and welcome to the fourth part in our six-part mini-series looking at the victims of Jack the Ripper. I'm Gemma. And I'm Emily. This time we're looking at the life of Catherine Eddowes, who was murdered on the same night as Elizabeth Stride in what is known as the double event. Due to the nature of the topic, this podcast is not going to be family friendly. We're also giving trigger warnings for alcoholism, prostitution and murder and mutilation. So with that, over to you. Catherine was born to George and Catherine Eddowes, and from the age of six, she attended the Dowgate School, which provided her with a good education. On the 17th of November, 1855, her mother died of consumption. The same disease would claim the life of her father less than two years later. Catherine was sent to live with her aunt and uncle, William and Elizabeth Eddowes, in Wolverhampton, who likely only took her in as she was 15 and able to earn her own wage and they quickly set her to work. After working long hours, Catherine would also have been expected to help with domestic duties, such as cooking, cleaning, and caring for her young cousins. Her uncle later claimed that it was around this time that Catherine acquired a fondness for drinking and keeping what he called late hours. In the summer of 1861, Catherine was caught stealing from the Old Hall Works, and it was only because of the relationship between her family and the owners that she was only scolded and fired rather than sent before the magistrate. When she was 19, Catherine left her uncle's house and walked 14 miles to Birmingham, where she wanted to start a new life with a more sympathetic family member. However, life there was no better. The house was still cramped, the job dull, the long hours and little pay. And then she met Thomas Conway. Now, there are differing stories about how and where they met. Thomas, who was described as, quote, a grey-eyed Irishman with light brown hair and a talent for telling tales, mostly about himself and his time in India with the army. He was a free spirit who went where the wind blew him. To Catherine, who hated the drudgery of her life, this must have been an incredibly attractive trait. However, they met nine months after arriving in Birmingham. Catherine wanted to return to Wolverhampton, which just so happened to be the direction that Conway was travelling. Whilst Catherine was smitten with Conway, no one in her family liked him, and her aunt gave her an ultimatum, either end the affair or leave their house. Catherine chose Conway and moved with him into a lodging house. By that July, much to her family's embarrassment, she was pregnant. Oh, no. I mean, it sounds like her life is about to be extremely complicated. What happened to her next? So Thomas set out to make a living as a chap bookseller with aspirations to write his own material however he was illiterate but thanks to her early education Catherine was able to write down his stories her new life was not without its own hardships selling chapbooks wasn't easy especially in rural areas they would have been at the mercy of the elements they would have gone hungry and been forced to sleep rough when there was no money for lodgings and been very very vulnerable to robbers all of which was made more challenging by Catherine's pregnancy. In April 1863, Catherine was nine months pregnant and entered the workhouse infirmary at Great Yarmouth in Norfolk. She gave her name as Catherine Conway and claimed she was married to a labourer. It's doubtful that Thomas accompanied her. It's more likely he left her in the care of the workhouse while he set out in search of work. She gave birth to Annie Conway and then they left the workhouse and rejoined Thomas. Even with a baby, the couple didn't slow down. In fact, the sight of a baby nestled in Catherine's arms likely increased people's generosity. 
Eventually, they settled in London, where Catherine was careful not to reveal too many details of her life. The lack of wedding ring would have raised eyebrows, as would the tattoo of Thomas Conway's initials on her forearm. By 1868, the family had settled in a small house in Westminster, a significant distance from her family due to their rocky relationship. It's not known if her family assisted her in the birth of her son, Thomas Lawrence, but by March 1869, she named her daughter after her sister, Harriet. With three children to feed, Thomas began working as an assistant bricklayer, which provided enough money to pay the rent and supply meals. Sadly, Harriet died of malnutrition at three weeks old, and after this, Thomas left London in search of work. With Thomas away, Catherine and her two surviving children, Annie, now aged seven, and Thomas, aged two, moved to Abbey Wood to live with her sister Elizabeth and her family. By January, Catherine and her children were forced to enter Greenwich Union Workhouse, a pattern that would become familiar over the next ten years, with the length of the visit varying from weeks to months. On the 15th of August, 1873, she gave birth to another son, George Alfred Conway, in the maternity ward of Southwark Workhouse. Between November 1876 and December 1877, Catherine was in and out of workhouses and casual wards on at least seven separate occasions. On the 6th of August, 1877, she was arrested for drunken disorderly behaviour and sent to Wandsworth Prison for 14 days. In every instance, including that of her incarceration, she brought some or all of her children with her. Thomas away, Catherine was left with no support, and when he returned, he was often violent. Her sister Emma recalled one Christmas, her sister had two black eyes, and that Thomas showed no remorse for his actions. Towards the end of the 1870s, Thomas and Catherine returned to hawking ballads together, accompanied by their sons. On two occasions, the boys were abandoned by their parents, and on the second occasion, 16-year-old Annie was called upon to collect her brothers. No one knows where Catherine went, but it's suggested alcohol played a part, and that the loss of an infant son, Frederick, may have caused her to turn to drink even more. I mean, that's a lot of upheaval. It was. Things were not about to get easier for Catherine, who was separated from Thomas by the autumn of 1881. The cause of their separation is debated. Thomas blamed it on Catherine's drinking. However, her sisters claimed that her sister had left Conway because he treated her badly. With Emma and Harriet having already cut ties with Catherine, she turned to her sister Elizabeth for support. However, she also became tired of her sister's behaviour. In September of that year, Catherine was once again charged with being drunk and disorderly. And whilst the law was forgiving, her family were not. And by the end of the year, Elizabeth had also cut off contact with her. Catherine was forced to turn to Eliza, the last sister who had not yet cut ties with her. While staying at the lodging house of 55 Flower and Dean Street, Catherine met John Kelly, who, like her, drank heavily. Kelly called Catherine his wife, but she preferred to bear the name of Conway and only used Kelly's name when it proved convenient. Both Catherine and John worked him as a labourer in the market and her as a charlady. Their income was paltry and unreliable, and they could not always afford a bed in a DOS house, so would make use of casual wards. As such, they rarely stayed in one place for long. Over time, Catherine lost the goodwill of her family, including her daughter Annie. During her mother's inquest, Annie recounted that her mother and Kelly would frequently appear at her door, intoxicated and begging for handouts. 
The situation came to a head in August 1886, when Annie, who was preparing to give birth to her third child, appealed to her mother for assistance. Catherine agreed only if she was paid. Annie grudgingly obliged, only to later discover that her mother had taken the money and gone out drinking, causing them to part on unfriendly terms, and when she moved, she failed to leave a forwarding address her mother could not find her. Having taken an unsuccessful trip to Kent to pick hops, Catherine and Kelly returned to Whitechapel on the 27th of September. Having spent their money on food and drink, they were forced to spend the night in the casual ward. When they were released the following morning, Kelly was able to find work in the market earning sixpence, which would have covered the cost of a night's lodging for one but not both of them. According to Kelly, Catherine told him to take the money and get a bed while she would spend the night in the casual ward and left between three and four that afternoon to queue for a bed. It should be noted that his account is muddled, most likely because of the amount he'd been drinking. So what happened to Catherine? It seems that on the way to the casual ward, she found money or someone to buy her alcohol. And around 8.30pm, she was found in a drunken heap by PC Lewis Frederick Robinson. When they arrived at the station, they asked her name, to which she replied nothing, and was put into a cell to sober up. Just after midnight, she woke up and began to sing to herself. Before her discharge, she gave the false name of Mary Ann Kelly and was seen out by George Henry Hutt, the jailer, who, aside from her killer, was likely the last person to see her alive. Kathleen's mutilated body was found at 1.45am in the southwest corner of Mitre Square by PC Edward Watkins. Her throat had been cut, her face mutilated and her intestines removed, along with her left kidney, which was missing. Her body was officially identified by her sister Eliza, who was so upset that she had to be led from the room and it took some time before she was composed enough to speak. Despite their financial circumstances, the Edo family paid for her funeral so their sister would not be buried in a pauper's grave and neither would the residents of Whitechapel permit Catherine to be laid to rest without a resounding send-off. Her funeral took place on the 8th of October. It was said that the crowd was so thick in places it slowed the progress of the glass hearse and the mourning carriage that followed behind it. She was laid to rest in Ilford Cemetery, surrounded by her family and 500 people who had gathered to pay their respects. Again, Is that pattern again? Yeah, it seemed to be going okay-ish, I want to say. Like, she had a stable relationship, kind of. More stable than we've seen with the other women. Yeah, and I believe I'm right in saying that she was probably the had the uh, most formal education of, of the women. Yeah. At least that we know about. Yeah. Because, you know, there are obviously gaps. But also, every woman that we've looked at, if I'm correct, had lost at least one child. Yeah, which then pushed them down the path of more alcohol. Mm-hmm. As well as their life circumstances. Yeah. Pushed them down the same path. I read um, a, a book a while ago and I don't remember who it was by because I don't think I even finished it. But the author basically said their families played a part in their deaths because they didn't take them in. But it's not easy to love an addict. No. And people didn't understand addiction then the way we do now. No, and it's quite clear from Catherine's case that, you know, her family did try and help, but they all reached a point where they had to say enough's enough. Yeah, 
they all had their own families. And the thing is, you can't help an addict until they're willing to help themselves. Yeah, I think probably they realised that they were feeding the beast. Yeah, yeah. but it is sad that she had chances and just couldn't, couldn't for whatever reason, couldn't get it together. Yeah, you know, I do like the fact that you know, obviously by now people knew there was a killer and she was the fourth victim and the people weren't willing to let her be buried quietly. You have to wonder if some of that some of that was to keep her case and the case of the women for her in the press and in the police's minds. This was the people because the thing is the people that would have lined the streets for Catherine mm. were lower class. Yeah. The, you know, if if these women had all been from the upper end of society, you you have to think this case would have got a lot more attention at the time than it did. Oh, a hundred percent, hundred percent. There would have been unending amounts of money and police time and everything that goes along with that. We still see that kind of thing happen yeah. today. Yes, it's terrible, really. But unfortunately, the viewpoint is that these women were. At the time, it was believed they were all prostitutes. They were all... What's the term I'm looking for? What kind of women were they? Fallen women. Yeah. So in their viewpoint, you know, they'd brought themselves to this point, which is a very unchristian way of thinking about it, considering the time. Yeah. But it is so sad to keep seeing the same pattern repeat. It is. You know, whoever killed these women zeroed in on a particular demographic, which is terrifying. Yeah, but what serial killer isn't? This is true. On that note, we have two more podcasts in this series. The next one looks at the life of Mary Jane Kelly, who some believe is the Ripper's last victim. And then we have one podcast after that, which focuses on the stories of women who might or might not have been Ripper victims. So until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.